listening to SBS On The Money with Ricardo Gonsalves. Hi everyone, it's your daily business and finance news wrap for this Thursday, the 14th of April 2022. Today we're going to be taking a bit of a, an extended look at Australia's jobless uh, rate or the uh, employment market at the moment because we did see an unemployment rate of 4% in March. That is unchanged. However, if you take a look at the unemployment rate to two decimal points, it actually sits at 3.95%. That is actually the lowest since the Bureau of Statistics started recording the monthly jobless numbers uh, in about February 1978. And of course, this comes ahead of the federal election. So I wanted to know more details about what the actual true nature of the jobs market is like. So for more, I spoke earlier with independent economist Saul Eslake. Can we drill down into that in a bit more detail? Just just how important is it firstly? B, is it really reflective of the labour market right now? Because what would you say to those people who say that You know, it doesn't reflect those who are doing it tough or that just one hour of work to be employed in a week, the definition isn't necessarily good enough. And and, and what does it say about the the workforce size too? Well, there's a number of important points there. Uh, First of all, the definition of employment and unemployment, that is that to be counted as employed, you need to be working as few as one hour a week and to be unemployed, you have to be working less than one hour a week and actively looking for employment. Uh, Those definitions have been unchanged since February 1978, and they are consistent with international statistical standards laid down, in this case, by the International Labour Organization. So there's no conspiracy to change the definition of unemployed in order to make the figures look better than they might be with a different definition. And indeed, the number of people who are working fewer than 10 hours is actually very small. And within the number who are working fewer than, say, 10 hours, the number who want to work more hours than they're actually working is also very small. It might also be worth noting that underutilisation, which does include, in addition to the unemployed by the standard definition, people who are working fewer hours than they would like to and are able to, is uh, also at 10.3%, the lowest it's been since before the onset of the financial crisis. I create an alternative, which I call effective unemployment rate, that adds back to the official total, people who haven't worked any hours because their employers have asked them not to come into work, or for other reasons, except for being sick or on annual leave, that measure peaked at 17% in the months immediately after the onset of COVID. And it rose again to over 10% during the lockdowns in New South Wales, Victoria and the ACT last year. But it fell from 5% in February to 4.6% in March. And I would say that's perhaps a more accurate definition of or measure of so-called true unemployment than the official one. But the third point I make in answer to your question is that the employment and unemployment figures are a measure of people's labour force status. They don't tell us anything about their incomes. They don't tell us, for example, whether people who are working are working on very low wages or on casual terms. And uh, it would appear that 
there are people, there's a lot of people whose wages are not keeping pace with the increase in the cost of living that's measured, however, imperfectly by the inflation rate. That unemployment rate, a record low since the monthly figures were recorded uh, since the mid-70s, though, um, why is it so low and how has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted that or influenced it? Well, there are two different factors at work. One is that the strong recovery in Australia's economy, fuelled by massive fiscal and monetary policy stimulus, has helped to create almost 395,000 more jobs than there had been on the eve of the pandemic in March 2020. That's an increase of 3%. It's one of the strongest rebounds in employment anywhere among advanced economies around the world. But the other factor is that the supply of labour has been crimped by the restrictions on immigration that were imposed with the onset of COVID and the fact that many migrants, particularly international students, actually left the country and went back to their countries of origin. So the working age population, that's people aged 15 and over, is some 474,000 fewer as of March than it would have been had the population continued growing after April 2020 at the rate it had been over the previous decade. That in turn means that the workforce is about 315,000 smaller than it would have been had those immigration restrictions not been in place for almost two years after the onset of COVID. The workforce has only grown by 159,000 over that time, as opposed to a 394,000 increase in employment. That's where the fall in unemployment has come from, from this combination of strong growth in demand for labour fuelled by uh, policy stimulus and restrictions on the supply of labour that, although they've now been lifted, uh, nonetheless have a legacy of a significantly smaller workforce than would otherwise have been the case. Saul S. Lake there, uh, independent economist. I then asked Saul what this all says about employment and economic growth. Well, certainly the recovery in employment is both a product of the recovery in, in particular, household demand and business investment since the depths of the recession in 2020 and after the smaller setback we had in the third quarter of last year. And those people who have got jobs, especially if they're full-time jobs, uh, their spending is in turn boosting the economy and helping to create more employment. Okay, that's a lot of technical details there. Um, is there anything in this in this data that seems to suggest that wages may start rising? Because isn't the Reserve Bank waiting for not just unemployment to continue to fall, but to see that having an impact on the on the pay packets of workers? Well, that's certainly what they have been saying for an extended period of time. That they won't be persuaded that the underlying inflation rate is sustainably within their 2 to 3% target band until they see wages growth with a three-handle in front of it. And as of the end of last year, wages growth by the most commonly used measure was only about 2.5%, which is higher than it had been during the pandemic, but was really only consistent with the average over the five years prior to 2020, during which the inflation rate had been consistently below 2%. Now, you would think that with the unemployment rate less than 4%, 
wages growth would start to pick up. After all, wages growth is ultimately a function of the interaction of the demand for and supply of labour, and that's now becoming much tighter than it had been at any point really in the last 20 years. In some other countries, such as the United States, where the unemployment rate's now down to 3.6%, or New Zealand, where it's down to 3.2%, wages growth certainly has picked up quite noticeably. In the US, it's running at its fastest rate since the mid-1980s. Here in Australia, the labour market now works a bit differently from other countries and from the way it used to in Australia when unemployment was last this low. In particular, many workers are covered by multi-year enterprise agreements, which have yet to expire and come up for renegotiation. That's why most people, me included, think that wages growth, although it should and will pick up, will only pick up fairly gradually. And uh, we'll have to wait and see whether anything changes as a result of an extended period of the unemployment rate having a three-handle on it. So in your view, what does it mean for the pace of interest rates rising? Because we're seeing more and more people assuming that rates are going to rise in June. Well, that's right. And following the increases just in the last 24 hours of 50 basis points by the Reserve Bank of New Zealand and overnight by the Reserve Bank of Canada, uh, that certainly increases expectations that the Reserve Bank of Australia can't be long in following behind. Indeed, by the time the Reserve Bank meets again in the first week of May, uh, it will also have seen the US Federal Reserve raise its policy rate, possibly by another 50 basis points, but certainly by another 25. It will also have the March quarter inflation data, which will likely show that headline inflation is above 4%, and that underlying inflation is probably close to 3%, the upper end of its 2 to 3% target bend. So there will be quite intense speculation as to whether the Reserve Bank is prepared to do a few days before the 2022 election what it did at a similar stage of the 2007 election and put interest rates up. Uh, everything the Reserve Bank has said thus far says they're not particularly keen to do that. But if they don't raise rates at the May meeting, the financial markets are going to speculate that they could be raising rates by, say, uh, 40 basis points at the June meeting rather than perhaps only by 15. And, and what, what are you penciling in? Well, I had been thinking that the Reserve Bank would raise rates by 15 basis points at its June meeting, 25 at the August meeting and 25 at the November meeting which would take you up to 0.75% by Christmas. And then I'd expected to continue raising rates through 2023 so that by the end of next year, the cash rate would be somewhere like one and three quarters to 2%. Uh, I suspect now the odds are favouring some more moves this year, which might see the cash rate reach 1% by the end of this year and at least 2% by the end of next year. Given how much debt Australian households have and how much more sensitive as a result they are to movements in interest rates, that's likely to have a considerable impact in slowing growth in the Australian economy and from the Reserve Bank's perspective, making sure that the increases in inflation we're seeing now don't become entrenched in people's expectations, which would in turn increase the prospects that we'd have unacceptably higher inflation for a much longer period.
Soulless like their independent economist. And to wrap up the interview, I asked him, given that the market is now expecting potentially more aggressive interest rate rises from the central bank, or at least a first rate rise in June, given that there was a lot of stimulus from the government during the pandemic, and did the RBA sit in its hands for too long? Here's what he said. The benefit of hindsight, I think the answer to that question may well have been yes. But even so, I don't think it was a bad mistake to have made. The lessons of other countries during the global financial crisis, for example, is that when a crisis such as COVID or the global financial crisis hits, no one really knows what the right amount of stimulus to provide is. You cannot know that. So you are bound to make one of two mistakes. You're either going to provide too much stimulus or you're not going to provide enough. Uh, and the problem with not providing enough, with providing too little stimulus, is not only will that stimulus not work, but your subsequent attempts to provide the right amount of stimulus will be undermined by the loss of credibility associated with it not being enough the first time. Whereas if you do too much, you can always wind it back once it's clear that you have done too much without the consequences being too serious. So I think it probably is, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, looking like too much stimulus was provided. But if that is the case, then Australia certainly had plenty of company in that regard from other economies all around the world, uh, where inflation is rising by more than it is here in Australia. And there is still a chance to wind that back in a way that means that the damage done, if indeed there has been any, will be relatively small. Good interview, Saulus Lake there, independent economist. Quick look at the share market, the 200 at 7,523, up 0.6%. For more, I spoke with Jessica Amir from Saxo Markets earlier today. Well, it's a couple of things, Ricardo. Uh, we're seeing travel and airline stocks get a bit of a kick after Moody's, the credit rating agency, upgraded Qantas's outlook, expecting uh, them to see a brighter next 12 to 18 months. Uh, secondly, we're also seeing lithium stocks get a bit of a boost, not only after Elon Musk said that he wants to potentially get into the lithium mining sector, but also as one of our homegrown lithium stocks upgraded their earnings again. They also see lithium prices rising, so that's benefiting the stock called Alchem, A-K-E is that company's name. And the other reason uh, that our share market is doing well today, Ricardo, is because China's central bank is expected to cut interest rates again. So this is boosting our commodity companies like BHP. So we've seen the iron ore price get another kick. The iron ore price is back above $154 and BHP's shares are back above 53 bucks for the first time or one of the first times since August last year. So lots of good things to look forward to. That Chinese central bank move is quite interesting because what we're seeing is the opposite around the world. Overnight, the Bank of Canada lifted rates by 50 basis points. Similar move by New Zealand yesterday. That just now really leaves the RBA. How's all of this rate talk influencing the market? Well, it's influencing the market a lot. So those sophisticated investors and those that are trying to get ahead are adjusting their portfolios for higher rates. And you hit the nail on the head. Everyone is moving, rates are rising. And we think that the market consensus or the market estimates for where interest rates will land at the end of the year are unrealistic. So the US 
central interest rate will probably not be 2.6%. It'll probably be 6%. So this means that stocks that could potentially sustain um, share price growth um, and survive and grow throughout this period will likely be those companies with strong balance sheets. So commodities, they're holding up and doing really well. So too is cybersecurity globally. Um, and we're also seeing defence stocks, so military-related stocks, get a bit of a boost. So these sectors will tend to do well regardless of how high rates go. So that's where money's moving to. And one of the top sectors in the market today is uh, travel-related stocks. You mentioned um, Qantas doing well on the back of that that Moody's um, upgrade. Can you run through why we're seeing the whole sector doing well, though? Yeah, good question. Uh, so uh, we do have to remember a lot of fund managers, when they're looking at their portfolios, they're forward-looking. So they think what stocks are going to do well over the next six to uh, six to 12 uh, to nine months even, um, and that's airlines. So airline stocks, uh, they're touted to be one of the strong sectors this year. Delta Airlines, as we discussed before this call, Delta Airlines reported a bit of an ugly result, but the market looked past that, focusing on their optimistic future. So Delta Air sees traffic uh, airline traffic picking up more bums on physical seats on planes uh, for the travel season in the US summer. Also, we saw, I believe, American Airlines, they inked a deal with a Brazilian airline. What does that mean? They're basically going to be expanding their routes. Uh, that opens up more avenues for revenue earnings. And then, of course, Thirdly, more closer to home, uh, the flying kangaroo Qantas um, got an upgrade by Moody's. Um, Moody's, the rating agency, thinks that uh, travel and tourism sector will hopefully be back to normal in 18 months. So the market's pretty excited about that. Jessica Ramee there from Saxo Markets. This SBS On The Money podcast is provided for informational purposes only. The content on this podcast should not be understood as constituting advice or a recommendation. It is not personal advice and does not consider your personal circumstances or objectives. You should contact a licensed professional before making any financial decision. Why do people want to be at work? To feel heard, appreciated, part of something, and to know there's a career path for everyone. Inclusive workplaces are linked to increased innovation, productivity, and employee satisfaction. Make your organisation a place where people want to be. For inclusion and diversity training, visit inclusion-program.com.au.